Welcome to the podcast for North Decatur Presbyterian Church. We are a Presbyterian USA congregation located in Decatur, Georgia. You can find out more information about the church, our service to the community, and our great education programs for children, youth, and adults at ndpc.org. And you can follow us on Facebook. If you're in the Atlanta area, we hope you'll come and join us in person. That's it. On to this week's scripture and sermon. Good morning. I'm the Reverend Beth Waltemath, and it's wonderful to be with you again to worship and to proclaim the word of God on this Palm Sunday. Our reading today comes from John chapter 12, verses 1 through 19. Join me in the prayer for illumination and listening to the word. Guide us, O God, in your word and in your spirit, that in your light we may see light. In your truth we may find wisdom, and in your love we may find the courage to love. And in your will that we may find your peace. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, the home of Lazarus whom he had raised from the dead. And there they gave a dinner for him. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those at table with him. Mary took a pound of costly perfume made of pure nard, anointed Jesus' feet, and wiped them with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of that perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, the one who was about to betray him, said, why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and the money given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. He kept the common purse and used to steal what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone. She bought it so that she might keep it for the day of my burial. You always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. When the great crowd of the Jews learned that he was there, they came not only because of Jesus, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests planned to put Lazarus to death as well, since it was on account of him that many of the Jews were deserting and were believing in Jesus. The next day, the great crowd that had come to the festival heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. As it is written, Do not be afraid, daughter of Zion. Look, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things. At least not at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written of him and had been done to him. So the crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to testify. It was also because they heard that he had performed this sign that the crowd went to meet him. The Pharisees then said to one another, You see, you can do nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. 
Holy Word, Holy Wisdom. Thanks be to God. Here we are, finally at the end of the season of penitence and self-sacrifice that we know and love as Lent. Before we even began this 40-day journey, a colleague of mine posted in bold letters on a purple background, this is the lentiest Lent I ever Lented. After a year of a global pandemic, few of us felt the need to focus on grief or to designate one more habit as sacrificed. I heard more commitments to take on a nourishing spiritual practice than to give up a vice this year. Than any other year, I have helped people discern what they will do to observe Lent. This Lent, with the isolation of quarantine and the grief of over half a million American lives lost, 2.73 million global deaths, many felt as if we needed no more Linting. What we needed was for a rapidly spreading virus to relent. Thankfully, we are starting to see that happen. Because it felt like Lent had been 360 days, not 40, I was struck by some of the messages coming from a part of the media meant to soothe and entertain. I was surprised what I was learning from those whose vocations centered around escapism. I was surprised what I was learning from those who have learned how to center our stories on love and on joy. What I was seeing was how in celebrating love and joy, we were not escaping justice and healing, but creating more strength and more courage for that work. Now I heard these messages in the most unlikely of places. In an interview about his leading role in the racially diverse, reimagined historical romance series that is premiered on Netflix around Christmas Day. Reggae Jean Page talked to NPR's All Things Considered about why he loved the alternate universe that producer Shonda Rhimes had created in Regency-era England because it was an opportunity to spotlight black joy in a period drama. And it was a way to have the revolutionary conversation that can respect the experience of working twice as hard for half as much while remaining the hero of one's own love story. Or I was struck by how the Latinx produced family sitcom, One Day at a Time, became a popular pandemic antidote for people stuck in their homes because of the way it featured a Cuban-American family dealing with issues of LGBTQ discrimination, colorism within the Latinx community, um, immigration and substance abuse and mental health stigmas, while highlighting joy and togetherness. Co-showrunner Gloria Calderon Kellett says that she was inspired to write her own show because she was an actor and the only roles available to her was Gangbanger's girlfriend or Gangbanger's sister. She had a broader and deeper experience to tell about Latina stories. 
Actors and producers like Reggae Jean Page or Shonda Rhimes, Gloria Calderon-Kellett, Justina Mikado are leaders in their industry promoting the work that features people of color and hiring cast and crews that reflects a robust spectrum of racial and cultural experience. And they do this with an intention to the fullness of the human experience of people of color. One that includes joy, love, and community. Today is a Sunday that has often asked Christians to make a choice between joy and suffering. In our liturgical calendar, it is marked as Palm slash Passion Sunday. Ministers throughout history have debated whether to focus on the parade full of promise or the march towards suffering. I hope today we can hear that we do not need to abandon one for the other, that pain and promise can be both present in our community, that joy and suffering can coexist in our hearts. I believe Jesus could hold both realities in his heart, which is why, even with all the humility and the irony of this makeshift pageant, Jesus does not discourage the celebration of who he is and the promise of redemption that he intends to convey. The crowd is all in. They have laid down their cloaks and offered their branches. They sing hosannas, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. His friends secured him a sturdy mount. His entry into Jerusalem is not the most expensive event, but it is still a spectacle. It is both pageant and protest. He is riding on the coattails of the empire's symbolism of power, and yet his is a counter-narrative to their order of oppression. Hosanna is the people's declaration of a different reign. Jesus propels himself into the center of their celebration, and yet, with each step, he strengthens the state's case against him. The Reverend Denise T. Anderson, Coordinator for Racial and Intercultural Justice in the Presbyterian Mission Agency, focuses in this passage on the courage that it took to show up on that day. The courage of the crowds, and the courage of Jesus to face his journey all the way to the cross. She recognizes the root of courage, core, meaning heart. Perhaps that is why, despite the strength necessary to face the persecution that is coming, the heart is made courageous. Jesus shows courage not just for enduring suffering, but for his ability to welcome love and joy when it is offered as it is in the palms and in the people and in the praise of today. The passage from the Gospel of John reveals how Jesus can hold competing goods and emotions in tension with equal compassion and joy. The story goes that six days before the Passover in the home of Lazarus, who had himself been the victim of death plots, that Jesus enjoyed a dinner with his friends. Mary anointed him with costly ointment to show her adoration for Jesus, and Judas objected to the cost and the ethics of this act. Jesus told Judas, whose motives were questionable, to back off. When he accepted Mary's act of love, 
he was quoting a verse from Deuteronomy 15:11, which says, since there will never cease to be some in need on the earth, I therefore command you, open your hand to the poor and the needy neighbor in your land. The quotation in its altered form does not do justice to Jesus' own mercy for the poor, which he demonstrated throughout his life. But his defense of Mary's act and his acceptance of it does, however, convey his understanding of the role that love and joy play in our ability to live lives of compassion. We cannot oversimplify the storylines of ourselves and of others. We cannot confine certain groups to difficult emotions and others to easier ones. Joy and love are not privileges, but birthrights. Pain and suffering are not things that we can delegate through oppression. They are conditions of our mortality and shared responsibilities of our interconnected fates. Jesus does not ignore the poor. He says, accept love so that you may serve them. Open your heart so your hand will remain open. As our country and our denomination consider their legacy of white supremacy and the extremely narrow scripts in which it has cast individuals and groups according to their race, gender, sexuality, religion, culture, and even political views. I am wrestling with the ways that liberal Christianity has inherited the idolatry of supremacy as a methodology of order and decency. I am wrestling with how our attachment to an ideal of order and righteousness might impede our ability to withstand disruption and displacement of the status quo, and therefore our ability to do more for revolution than to just imagine it. Consider how in 1965, after the Voting Rights Act passed, Martin Luther King Jr called out the polite racism of liberals, especially in cities like Los Angeles, Chicago, and New York. Black activists were heroic in the South where police brutality was public. But to King, polite racists ignored police misconduct in their own backyards, focused on cleaning up crime in low-income neighborhoods while ignoring the code infractions of law of landlords and denying tenants their rights or by not ensuring equal employment and education. King also highlighted the distorted obsession with black behavior in discussions about conditions and impoverished conditions, impoverished communities. By focusing on black crime, he said, it was a way to avoid looking at the much greater crime of ghettoizing people in communities with insufficient schools, jobs, and city services. In the last year of his life, King called out his allies for the comfortable vanity 
of those who saw themselves as friends of racial equality, but were unwilling to take the necessary steps to see a new order in society. King could have called his allies pious racists, for the behavior they were most often guilty of was criticism and self-righteousness. From the safety of their states and statuses, they condemned the obvious forms of racism, as well as the more extreme tactics of freedom fighters. Pious racists felt they were arbiters of what tactics were acceptable or not to disrupt the peace. In 1967, King wrote that most whites in America, including many of goodwill, proceed from the premise that equality is a loose expression for improvement. White America is not even psychologically organized to close the gap, he said. Essentially, it seeks only to make it less painful and less obvious, but in most respects to retain it. Friends, for white liberal Christianity, embracing liberation theology is not the same as journeying to freedom. We see this in the way that Jesus is able to ride on an ambiguous mount into an uncertain future awaiting him in Jerusalem. We see this in the challenge he gives to his disciples at his death as his death becomes more imminent. How he instructs the disciples to take up your cross and to drink of this cup and we feel the challenge in the ways that Jesus lets each of them, specifically Judas and Peter and Thomas and Philip, know the unique psychology that is holding each one of them back and will lead them to betrayals, big and small. When I wrestle with the betrayal of progressive Christianity, I see the ways that we have tried to motivate progress through shame and to birth justice from righteous anger. While we are surely burdened by our own share of guilt and fueled by disappointment, shame and anger are instruments of control and dominance. They are the psychological weapons of supremacy of any color or creed. What I don't see enough of is how we embraced joy and accepted love. For myself, I can too often postpone celebrations of joy or distance myself from love in some false solidarity with those who are suffering. It's as if I cannot believe God's love for me unless I see proof that all the world is loved and fully healed. As I read the stories about Jesus today, I am aware that Jesus put no such prerequisites on the love of God or the love of others. He thanked Mary for the anointing. He rode into Jerusalem with an open heart. He broke bread with his friends wanting only to demonstrate to them how to love one another when he was gone. He advises how, because of the coming resurrection, no one will take their joy from them. And even as he faced crucifixion, 
He forgave those who did not even ask for forgiveness. What wondrous love is this? The dichotomy of oppressed and oppressor is only part of the story of the reality we share as living, breathing children of creation. It is the not-yet-redeemed part in an earth that is already showing signs of the realm of God in its midst. The rest of the story is as big and glorious as an epic romance or a heartwarming family comedy with characters from a diverse set of backgrounds and a wide range of experiences. On Tuesdays at noon, I host a contemplative prayer group with theologian Dr. Wendy Farley, who runs the spirituality programs at San Francisco Theological Seminary. I've invited members of churches I've served in the present and the past, as well as global missionaries with whom I've connected over the years. Today, I invite you as well, or welcome you to invite a friend who might need it. Send me an email and I'll send you a link to our Zoom call. It's 30 minutes that focuses on training our hearts, minds, and bodies for compassion by beginning with the felt experience of being loved. Wendy Farley spent her career listening to those whom the church had driven away because of its exclusionary theologies and prejudicial or elitist policies. Her theological work is rooted in the knowledge and experience of our belovedness. Her image of God shares roots with St. Augustine's name for the Trinity, God the Lover, Jesus the Beloved, and Spirit as Love itself. But it grows into a vast canopy of saints among the desert fathers and mothers, the female medieval mystics, and the heroes of the civil rights movement like John Lewis and Fannie Lou Hammer, who clung to this embodied knowing of what it is to be loved. This full body knowledge allowed each of them in their own precarious circumstances to love without limitations in the face of violence and death. Now, the basic premise is that for us to be fully immersed in justice and mercy, we must experience joy and know we are loved. The desert ascetics spent years watching the mind to understand the many ways that human psychology warps our understanding of our worth and the worth of others. They tried to heal this with prayer and a felt experience of God's presence. Their writings are intended to be a roadmap for integrating mind and heart for pilgrims too busy to find the way on their own. And the medieval mystics, particularly the women, wrote love poems to God in their vernacular languages and worshiped together with singing and dancing. While the priests wrote Latin treatises on sin and the troubadours wrote songs of conquest to the ideal woman. These same women were organizing communities of unmarried lay women who lived together and supported one another through work as teachers, nurses, and other domestic tasks, offering 
women literacy and a livelihood without being the property of a man. And the activists of the civil rights movement trained in nonviolence so that when their own lives were threatened, they would not be tempted to sacrifice the humanity they shared with their oppressors. Life in antiquity was hard, much more so in the desert. Life in the Middle Ages was dark, especially for women. Life in the Jim Crow South was degrading and dehumanizes, dehumanizing for black Americans. But the teachers that emerge from these struggles focus on love and the very real knowledge of being loved as the source of their courage. So let us celebrate this Palm slash Passion Sunday, prepared for the full range of emotions that make us human. Let us not dampen joy or undervalue love. Even in the face of imminent suffering, Jesus never loses courage and never discourages love and joy. As we take up our palm branches again this year, as we shout our hosannas, let us consider what it was like to be amongst the crowd that cheered on Jesus. We do not have to ignore the grief or deny the uncertainty or cover up the fear. But what would it be like to embrace joy and to express our love for the one who taught us we are loved and taught us we are called to love others? What would it be like to keep our hearts open to joy and to love and to hope? Open heart, open hands. Amen.